Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is episode two of The Gift of Fear. I'm your host, Troy Hollings, and this is the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. We are journeying into the center of the earth. We are reading The Gift of Fear by Gavin Becker. So far, he's talked about how we all have an intuition, and that can be calibrated, and it already mostly is, to detect evil, violence, and badness in the world. We just have to open our minds to it, and that's what he is teaching us about. And he's moving into what is intuition? What is the technology? Which is, is, is you know, if you think about it, what is actually happening in our brain is a program is running. So there's, he's saying that there's this technology of intuition. What is it? Thanks for asking, Gavin says. I walked into that convenience store to buy a few things, and for some reason, I was suddenly afraid. I turned right around, and I walked out. I don't know what told me to leave, but later that day, I heard about the shooting. Airline pilot Robert Thompson was telling Gavin about dodging death right here on the ground. So I asked him, what did he see? How, how did you know? And, and so w- w- Gavin is just jumping us right into a story where he's, he's talking to a guy who was going to go to a convenience store and there was a shooting there at exactly the time he was going to be going. He starts walking in. He's like, get the fuck out. And he turns back around. Gavin's like, hey, man how'd you know and the guy's like it's it's magic nothing dude nothing it was just a gut feeling well now that i think back the guy behind the counter looked at me with a very rapid glance he just jerked his head towards me for an instant and you know i guess i'm used to a clerk kind of sizing you up when you walked in when you walk in but he was intently looking at another customer and that must have seemed odd to me it must have seen that he was concerned. And so we say is that like, think about that. That's really interesting. You know, you, you walk into a convenience store. How many convenience stores have we walked into? And the gas station clerks that are not under threat, they all kind of do the same thing. They look at you. They're like, should I be worried about this fucking guy? And they look, they look down, they look up and they're like, whatever. And then you go get a drink and it's fine. In this case, he walked in and instead of, should I be worried about this fucking guy? The gas station guy just like quickly glanced at him and then immediately like snapped his head back to another customer. That seems weird. Thompson continues, I noticed that the clerk who was focused on that customer, that the, the customer's wearing a big heavy jacket. And of course, I now realize that it was very hot out. Hmm, that's probably where he was hiding the shotgun. He says, thinking back, it's all clear. But, the, but at the time, it didn't mean anything. So this guy walks in, clerk looks weird. He's f- staring at a, at a guy who's got a big puffy jacket and it's hot out. So the guy's just like, you know what? Something's fucked up here. And Gavin's like, actually, I know you said it didn't mean anything to you then, but it did. Gavin goes, combining what amounted to fear on the face of the clerk with the man in the heavy coat 
with the men in the car with their uh, with their engine running oh yeah so there's a, there was also like just a car sitting out there with the engine running and they're like oh that's kind of weird thompson's unconscious knowledge of convenience store robberies it was no wonder he just left the store just moments before a police officer happened in and was shot dead by a man surprised in the middle of a robbery so this thompson guy goes in goes out get the fuck out and then right after that a cop gets in and gets killed what robert thompson and many others want to dismiss as a coincidence or as a gut feeling is in fact a cognitive process faster than we recognize and far different from the familiar step-by-step thinking we rely on so willingly so this is you know daniel kahneman would say this is our system one it's a fast quick intuition a client who was recounting getting anonymous death threats after a long and contentious lawsuit felt quite certain they were from the man she had sued but her story included some extra details okay so gavin's just jumping to another example and he's saying you know another example illustrating the technology of intuition this lady had a contentious lawsuit she starts getting death threats after the lawsuit's done and she's like god damn it after the case was settled i knew that the guy we'd sued was still really angry but i was surprised he would stoop to sending me death threats i was discussing the settlement one day with tony he used to be an intern for my lawyer anyways i said to him I hope the case being over ends this matter, and I thought it would, but the threat started coming. And so Gavin's listening, and Gavin's like, tell me about this guy that who, who used to work for your lawyer. Oh, Tony, he's so sweet. He's taken a real interest in the case, but apparently he had he let other responsibilities slide. Even after he, Even after he was fired, he kept coming to court to give me support, which I really appreciated. After the case was done, he called me and said, Hey, I hope we can still stay in touch even though the case is over. You don't think. Yep, Gavin does think. Turned out, Tony, Tony did it. Tony was the one sending the death threats, the intern for the lawyer. So an extraneous character in a story, a seemingly unimportant detail, became a suspect and ultimately proved to be the threatener. But on some level, my client knew all along he was the best suspect. So that's interesting. So that's just saying that when you look at these situations of violence across the ocean of the world of what possibilities it could be, most of them have some sort of a debrief story where the person can figure it out. Like, oh, you know, and then I just started meeting Tony and man, Tony really is taking an interest. And it's like, wait a second. You don't think it's Tony. It was Tony. But if we know it in hindsight, we actually have all the ingredients right now. So be aware of your intuitions, What is what Gavin is saying. Can you imagine an animal reacting to the gift of fear the way some people do, with annoyance and disdain instead of attention? No animal in the wild, suddenly overcome by fear, would waste any mental energy thinking, eh, it's probably nothing. Dude, that's actually a very good point. Uh, so we own goats and goats deductively honor the principle of if something even slightly scares me, react with a shitload of fear and run away. And, and so what he's saying is that like goats aren't worried about looking stupid. Goats don't give a shit if they're going to hurt, hurt your feelings. You know, like I accidentally, uh, this is a true story. I have broken toes still. Okay. And so a, f- a few days ago I was going out, I was checking for the mink 
because we have a damn mink that's been trying to eat the ducks and I'm like obsessed with trying to kill it because it's just killing the ducks and I've got to for, for my farmly duty. And so I walk up to these, I walk out the stairs and my left and right toe both collapse. And now I have a Jimmy Dean breakfast sandwich in my hands. I trip, I fall, almost fall down the stairs and I huck the Jimmy Dean breakfast sandwich just like deep into the yard by accident. The ducks immediately eat it, but the goats in the background were like, what the fuck? And they all sprinted away. So like two broken toes, Jimmy Dean, ducks just ate my breakfast and 25 goats just like do a 300 yard dash because that scared them. But they're not like waiting around to be like, oh, you know, that's just, he's got broken toes. It's just Jimmy Dean. They just, they just run too often. We chide ourselves for even momentarily giving validity to the feeling that someone is behind us on a seemingly empty street or that someone's unusual behavior might be sinister. You know, so if, if you know, the, the plumber comes over and the plumber's like, hey, so is your husband coming back soon? And you're like, wow, that's, he probably just wants to know that because maybe he thinks the husband's going to pay money. But you get that feeling and you're like, oh, it's probably nothing. He's saying, be like the goats, man. It's probably not nothing. Instead of being grateful to have a powerful internal resource and entertaining the possibility that our minds might actually be working for us, we choose not to explore and even to ignore survival signals. You know, I think I actually heard Gavin DeBecker, uh, this fellow right here on a podcast long ago before I knew who he was, and he told the story of um, a kidnapping. And you get into a, a car and, you know, you're, or you get into a taxi and you're like, Hey, I want to go here. And the taxi driver's like, cool. And you, it's a new city, but you've got like a rough geographic map in your head. And the taxi driver takes you to where he, you know, that is the most likely way he needs to turn. And he doesn't take the turn. And you're like, Hey, you know, uh, you know, I want to go to the Sheridan. And he's like, Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to get you the Sheridan. And you're like, okay. And that thought starts in your head where you're like, hmm. Now, if you honor it, you are four seconds into a kidnapping attempt. If you ignore it, you are going to get kidnapped. And so the story goes on, and this is a real story, um, bastardized from years of, of memory. Um, but the story goes on, and then there's another turn. Taxi driver doesn't take it. Now the guy looks over looks at the taxi driver and is like, shit. But instead of acknowledging it, he's like, well, he's, he probably just has to go run an errand before he drops me off. Probably just has to go run an errand before he has to drop me off. Like, think about the rationalization that shit is. Then he, then this, this guy misses the turn completely. And uh, there's no way to get to the Sheridan, the, the metaphorical Sheridan. And the guy's like, hey, I need to go to the Sheridan. The guy's like, oh yeah, I just got to do something really quick. And he starts getting further and further and further out into the middle of nowhere. And finally, you know, this guy who's getting kidnapped, like acknowledges he's getting kidnapped, but like that feeling of denial, like don't give that power is, is the point of what Gavin's saying. A woman could offer no greater cooperation to her soon to be attacker than to spend her time telling herself, but he seems like such a nice man. Like he's, he's, he brought me cat food. Like, He's a nice man. Or let's say a woman is getting into an elevator, but she sees a guy in there and he just gives her the creeps. No real reason. She's gotten into hundreds of, hundreds of elevators before, but what does she do? She says, you know, 
I'm not going to live like this. And I'm not going to insult this guy by letting the door close in his face. When the fear doesn't go away, she tells herself to not be silly and she gets into the elevator. So what is sillier? Gavin wants to know. Waiting a moment for the next elevator and risking maybe offending a stranger who probably doesn't even care? Or getting into a soundproof steel chamber with a stranger that you're afraid of? Well, goddammit, Gavin, when you put it like that, predicting the routine behaviors of adults in the same culture is so simple, in fact, that we rarely bother to do it consciously. We react only to the unusual, which is a signal that there might be something worth predicting. You know, the man next to us on the plane for five hours gets little of our attention until out of the corner of our eye, we realize he's reading our magazine. We see it all but we edit most of it out. Thus, when something does call out to us, we ought to pay attention. But for many people, that's a muscle they just don't exercise. But just like not lifting causes small muscles, not exercising this muscle causes atrophy in your intuition machine. And so he's gonna move into China Leonard's, it's a lady. Uh, China Leonard's story is not about violence, it is, however, about life and death and about the denial of intuition. She and her young son, Richard, had just settled into the pre-op room at St. Joseph's Hospital where Richard was soon to have minor ear surgery. He usually had a barrage of questions for doctors, but when the anesthesiologist, Dr. Joseph Verbrugge, came into the room, the boy fell silent. He didn't even answer when Dr. Verbrugge asked if he was nervous. Look at me, the doctor demanded, but Richard didn't respond. The boy obviously disliked the abrupt and unpleasant doctor, and China felt the same way, but also felt something more than that. So they're meeting this doctor for the first time, and the kid who's normally like, hey doctors, like won't even look at the, the doctor. And then this anesthesiologist shouts at the kid, look at me. And the mom's like, I kinda hate this fucking guy. But it's stronger than that. It's an impulse, like it's flashing in her mind. A strong intuitive impulse crossed her mind. Cancel the operation, it boldly said. Cancel the operation. She quickly suppressed the impulse and began a mental search for why it was unsound. So, so like her head is like, cancel it, fucking cancel it. But setting aside her intuition about Dr. Verbrugge in favor of logic and reason, she decided, hey, man, you can't judge someone based on his personality. Eh, but, but she still felt like, cancel the operation, cancel it. But she thought, you know, this is a good hospital. There's no way that I know this. I'm just nervous. And so she beat her intuition down. The operation went forwards as scheduled and Richard died during the minor procedure. It is a sad story that teaches us that the words, I know it, are more valuable than the words, I knew it. With denial, the details we need for the best predictions float silently by us like life preservers, but while the man overboard may enjoy the comfortable belief that he isn't still in his stateroom, there is soon a price to pay for his daydream. So that's a crazy example though, because that's tough. And, and that's not always the right situation. And, and sometimes you're going to get, you're going to make a radically wrong call, but like, that's an example. So this, this lady, you know, her son was going to go get minor ear surgery 
and the anesthesiologist comes in and, and they're both like, I fucking hate this guy. And even more than that, it's like flashing in her brain, cancel the operation, cancel it, cancel it. But she's like, well, you know, we've already scheduled this with insurance and that's going to be so inconvenient. And I already took a day of PTO and like, I'm probably wrong. And she goes along with it and her son dies. And now that's not even saying that if she canceled it, like she could just be totally wrong. And like, let's say you go into a business deal and you meet with somebody and you're like, I fucking, the, the, I, I'm not going to do this deal. And you walk away from a deal with no real reason except for some vague feeling that like this person's going to be a horrible partner. You know, that, that could, that could short term hurt you. And you might never know if you really avoided anything. But what Gavin's point is, is, Hey, what's the real risk? If you just every, you know, if once a year you intuitively make the wrong call versus your kid gets killed. Okay. Damn. Gavin says, I know a lot about this. I spent half my childhood and half my adulthood practicing prediction while perfecting denial. Before 13, I saw a man shot. I saw another man beaten and kicked to unconsciousness. I saw a friend struck near lethally in the face and head with a steel rod. I saw my mother become a heroin addict. My point in telling you all this is not about me. It's about you. It's about you because though triggered by different occurrences, you have felt the exact same emotions I have. While some were painful, some were frightening, no experience of mine had any more impact on me than those of yours that had the greatest impact on you. And he's saying that because his thesis, again, is inside all of us. We already have the machinery to successfully predict. We just have to open ourselves to it, and we need some subtle coaching. Now, I'm, I'm, I might have to give you some feedback on, on this transition, Gavin. Not quite as masterful as the last. A man kills a cow with an axe, cuts open the carcass, and then climbs inside to see what it feels like. Later, he uses the axe to kill his eight-year-old stepbrother. Another man murders his parents by shooting out their eyes with a shotgun. We use the word inhuman to describe these murderers, but I know them both, and they are not inhuman. They are precisely human. Though anthropologists have long focused on the distinctions between people, it is recognizing the sameness that allows us to more accurately predict violence. When we accept this, we are, we are more likely to recognize the rapist who tries to con his way into our home, the child molester who applies to be a babysitter, or the assassin in the crowd. Scientists, after all, do not observe a bird that destroys its own eggs and say, well, that never happens. This is just a monster. Rather, they correctly conclude that if this bird did this, others might. And there must be some pattern and purpose in nature, some cause, some predictability. And that is what we are here to do. People who commit terrible violence choose their acts from among many options. To really work towards prediction and prevention, we must accept that these facts are done by people included in the we of humanity, not by interlopers who somehow sneaked in. So the whole point of, of what that basically was saying is that and when we look at these people who do violence, we just think about them as like, you know, they're just like lepers or they're just like crazy werewolves or monsters. He's saying, if you think that they're monsters, that means that they're unpredictable. But in reality, 
they're decidedly human. Now, maybe their methods, like maybe, maybe you would only yell at someone in a road rage situation, but someone else would, would crash into their car and execute them. But that feeling is coming from the same place. And if you ignore the fact that you actually can understand how that person feels. Now, you'd never take it as far as they would, but you can understand that. That is an important point. Because how many times have we heard the myth, you know, that, hey man, he was just so quiet and normal. No idea he was going to do anything. By the frequency of this cliche, you could almost believe that apparent normalcy is a pre-incident indicator for aberrant crime. It isn't. And so what Gavin's alluding to is like, you know, the, you interview someone's friends and family after any crime ever. What do they all say? You know, he was just such a good boy. But Gavin's like, no, he wasn't, dude. There, there were fucking signs. I guarantee it. All these stories spread the myth that violence comes out of nowhere. Though I did not end up a violent man myself, Gavin says, I did become a kind of ambassador between the two worlds, fluent in both languages. Another thing I want to spread is that murderers are not as different from the rest of us as we like to think. I'll protect the anonymity of the friend who told me about an experience she had in her 20s. She was so angry at a boyfriend that she fantasized about killing him, though she knew she'd never do anything like that. So Gavin is talking to a friend and the friend's like, hey, I know you do self-defense stuff. Can I tell you something real fucked up? And Gavin's like, yes, yes you can. And she says, when I was in my 20s, I was so goddamn angry at my boyfriend that I was thinking about killing him. Now I never would have done it, but one morning I was driving to work and an amazing coincidence occurred. My ex-boyfriend was crossing the street directly in front of my car. His being there seemed like a signal and my anger grew and grew and I lost my mind. I pushed the accelerator to the floor. The car was going about 50 miles per hour when it struck him. But having moved just enough the last moment to save his life, he was hit in the leg only. Were it not for the loudness of the car, this woman would be marked today as a common killer. Instead, She's among the world's most famous and admired people. So Gavin has all these really, really famous clients. So in that, that, that story, that could be Shakira. And I'm going on record to say I don't have any inside knowledge. It's probably not Shakira. But this person, when they were in their 20s, almost killed their, boy, their ex-boyfriend with their car, hit their ex-boyfriend with their car, and was trying to kill him. But it was just like just a fleet of fancy, like, like a mental illness that took over for for like two seconds when she had the ability and the opportunity but got away with it now she's telling gavin and she's rich and famous well now you know anyone and these people may have grown up looking like everybody else but they send subtle signals that reveal their intent and that my priests is where we're going what are some of those signals now kelly uh, had been apprehensive from the moment she heard the stranger's voice and now she wants me to tell her why and so if you remember on the first episode um kelly uh was carrying groceries up the stairs she one of the bags ripped cat food can fell down and some guy uh ended up assaulting her for three hours and it turns out he was gonna kill her until she escaped and so kelly's like hey 
tell me why I was scared of him from the beginning. More than anything else, it was that there was someone else there. And Kelly knew, at least intuitively, after not hearing any doors open or close, that he must have been waiting there. So I don't know if you've ever, um, like if you're in a room enough or like in a house enough that you know how things sound and you, you know how things sound if a door's open that shouldn't be open. So like I was on a call with my headphones on and the house got a little bit colder, but it just felt like it, it sounded different, which is weird because like it didn't usually sound like anything, but it sounded a little bit like anything differently than usual. And, and I was like, huh. And so I get off the call and I go out and dude, my fucking front door had blown open because homeboy didn't close it well enough. But like that is the, the subtle type of intuition stuff where it's like something just sounds a little different. And so the first thing that Kelly uh, was kind of put off by was she dropped, you know, she walked up, goes in the front door, starts walking up the stairs, doesn't pass anybody, doesn't hear any doors open or anything. And then the can of cat food goes down the stairs and this guy's in there. And that's kind of like my door being open and just like something doesn't sound right. She's like, she didn't explicitly acknowledge it, but thinking back, she didn't see him, but he had to have been there. So was he sneaking in the shadows and she walked right by him? Hmm. Only as we spoke, did she realize that when he said he was going to the fourth floor too, he didn't give a reason. It was Kelly who filled in the blanks and assumed he must be visiting the Kleins who lived across the hall. So, you know, first thing is that weird, you know, how the fuck is this guy in here? And then it's like, oh, she's going, he's going to the fourth floor. And like, imagine there's like seven people on the fourth floor, seven apartments, you know, she probably knows all those people. And so she's like, okay, well, he's probably visiting the Kleins, but maybe, but she filled that in. Kelly tells me that she didn't listen to herself because there wasn't anything in the man's behavior to explain the alarm she felt. And so I don't know if this is a, an example, um, but my good buddy and I, redneck friend, hunting buddy, buddy for life, we, uh, back in the day, five, six years ago, like right after I just read this book, um, I, for the first time, I, I drove to his house to go hunting and it was like an hour drive and I was so dedicated and dude, my life was, I guess, a similar level of toil still, but, um, we didn't get anything cause I was whole world bullet hunting and I had to stop at the gas station. And so I was driving back from his house and I, I stopped at the gas station that was right off of I-70. And, and so already I was like, okay, there's probably a wider swath of people that come to this gas station than a gas station that's not right next to the interstate. And I I pull in and I see this shifty looking guy and I get I get the the full body chills as uh as Ashley Flowers on a True Crime podcast but know to say. And so I was going to pull in right next to him, but I was like that doesn't seem like a good idea. But I had to get gas and so I pulled all the way around. And, and so like I did a full loop, but I made it look like you know, I was pulling there just so that I could, you know, get to my gas, the, you know, the, the gas pump on the certain side and I get out and I, um, you know, start pumping my gas and this guy's like desperately trying to make eye contact with me. I look at him, I, I nod my head, I go back to the gas station, so non-committal, he can't 
you know, he can't even do anything. And then I noticed that he's acting really um, like he, he knows the other guy who's get also getting gas from a different car. So I'm like, huh, like how are these two guys here? They know each other. And then they open the trunk of one of his car of that other guy's car and they start looking in it. And I don't know. I don't know, man. Like, but there was some fucking shit going on there. I just felt super off. I don't know why it was like, maybe I was paranoid. I don't know. But I, I think I filled up my tank like three quarters of the way and I just drove off. But like, imagine maybe I was wrong. Okay, cool. But maybe I wasn't. And I got ahead of this enough that I pulled to the, the farthest away gas pump and I was just prepared to defend myself with lethal self-defense force if I needed to and I drove away and it was no problem and so Gavin's whole point is that the only way to reduce risk is to learn what risk looks like the capable face-to-face criminal is an expert at keeping his victim from seeing survival signals but the very methods he uses to conceal them can reveal them so what Gavin's going to go into now is Oh, he's talked about like this technology of intuition and how we we actually have it and we can't ignore it. Start talking about Kelly, how you know there were some facts that she kind of missed getting into the situation. You know, even the weirdness of like that guy just being in the room, you know, being in the building somehow. But now Gavin's going to talk about what are some tactics that we can be on the lookout for. Because if you're just going out into the world, you're at the grocery store, you're, you know, you're talking to people, you're at the gas station, you're at the Black Friday store, theoretically, no one really wants anything from you. And so they're really just like, if they are communicating with you, maybe they're being friendly, maybe they're not, maybe they're just like, it's just passing encounters that are unrelated. But then come into contact with someone who's using a tactic on you and you're like, huh, that's different. That's weird. That's abnormal. My intuition should flag when I see that. And that's what he's going to do. So he's going to list out some some tactics um, that these criminals use so that we can be aware, but even more so that we can just even know like, hey, that's a weird, that's a, that's a tactic. Huh. Okay. Maybe I should be more concerned about this. The first is forced teaming. Kelly asked me what signals her attacker displayed, and I start with one called forced teaming. It was shown through his use of the word, we've got a hungry cat up there. And so, um, I, I don't remember you know, when I said it in the last episode, like exactly how I said it, but, but he was, uh, what, what he told Kelly is like, oh, hey, no, we've got a hungry cat. Like, look at us. Like, we're in this together. We're in the same boat. And, and, and forced teaming is an effective way to establish premature trust and rapport. But forced teaming is not about coincidence and is one of the most effective and sophisticated manipulations that criminals use. So what he's saying is when you encounter someone who all of a sudden starts saying we or us or man, we're late for this movie or how are we going to handle this like we are some team. And it's like, hey, fucker. There's no we here, okay? I'm going to walk back to my car. You're going to walk back to your car, and I don't need your help and leave me alone. But Kelly did not consciously recognize what the into what her intuition knew, so she couldn't apply the simple defense mechanism of forced teaming to make a clear refusal to accept the concept of partnership. 
I did not ask for your help and I do not want it. So imagine if her intuition's going crazy, this guy's in here somehow, but she's like, hey, I don't need help. He's like, no, you know, there's, there's such thing as being too proud. And then she goes, yeah, there's such thing as being a fucking dick. Okay. So get the fuck away from me before I, before I yell, she wouldn't have gotten assaulted and she could have, you know, been nicer than that, but like, no. Okay. I have a rule. I only meet men on Tinder. Sorry. But like many of the best defenses, this one has the cost of appearing rude. And so um, there's a there's a self-defense coach, Tony Blauer, who I think is 80% legit, 20% voodoo mumbo jumbo, but pretty good self-defense coach. And I was watching a video of his and, and he says, hey, there might be times when you have to risk being rude. So let's say someone's walking quickly towards you, towards your car. They're going to about to get in your space and, and you put your hand on your pistol, you know, not drawing it. And you say, Hey, don't get any fucking closer. Like, or even don't even, don't even swear. Say, Hey, stop right there. Don't get any closer. Let's say that they were just coming to, I don't know, give you a gift certificate to red lobster. They're like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. And you're like, what, what do you want? They're like, I just want to give you a gift certificate. You're like, oh, my bad, dude. I'm sorry. So if someone does not have hostile intent and you momentarily are rude to them, especially if you're a lady carrying your groceries, like they'll understand. Like, let's say that I was mentally playing this out and trying to be helpful to this lady. And she's like, Hey, I, I don't need your help. I'm like, okay, cool. Like I'll set the cat food here for you. All good. No problem. Like, even if she's kind of rude, I'm not going to be offended. But the risk is you're going to have to potentially risk offending someone because let's say that in your effort to be polite, you now have let a predator in. And I will say, you know, all of these are just like indicators um, because force teaming, I was listening to a podcast yesterday and it was Jason Calacanis and uh, Reed Hoffman. So famous startup founder. They were talking about AI because I'm now obsessed with fucking AI. But Reed told Jason, he's like, hey, you know, Jason, we are both old men of the internet. And they, they bonded over the old manness of like, oh, I remember dial up. Oh, I remember this. I remember that. My first computer was this. It was the size of a desk. And dude, seeing the change of tone in the interview after they had done that, that was like a great interview. And Reed Hoffman consciously did that, but like that was just to make the interview better. So it's not saying these are inherently evil, but just be aware of these tactics. The next one, charm. Charm is another overrated ability. Note that I called it an ability, not an inherent feature of one's personality. Charm is almost always a directed instrument, which like rapport, build, like rapport building, has motive. To charm is to compel, to control by allure and attraction. If you consciously tell yourself, that person is trying to charm me, as opposed to, this person is charming, that's a good start. So, I don't know why, but I, I ever since reading this book, I've, I've kind of acknowledged my intuition a little bit more. I used to be like, shut up, deductive logic or death, bitch. But uh, at the old company I was at, we just hired this new guy and, you know, it was just, we'd all gone remote, um, you know, within the last six months. And I was, you know, found myself working a 
just like a lower level junior sales job in a pandemic and it was kind of shitty but my boss was super cool and so i was fine but this guy had sniffed out somehow like he was going through and meeting everybody at the company virtually and he like decided he wanted to try to be be my friend and he was very personable and we actually had a lot in common like he thought he was going to be a professional athlete he lifted a bunch um he was cool but he was just too charming like too polished and like i watched him give a speech in front of our our whole company and like he he perfectly wove in our core values and our chief operating officer was like man this guy you know i know he's only been here for four weeks but man he's amazing and there's just like something inauthentic and something like i just didn't like about him and i could be wrong a a lot of people like him but it's just like man i don't know about this because somebody, you know, somebody's not just charming. They are trying to charm you. Like, he would call me and say, oh, hey, my buddy Troy. I'm like, who the fuck said we were buddies, dude? Okay, I'm, I'm locked in my house. It's COVID times. Okay, I don't even like this job. I quit any second. Gavin says, if I'm trying to deceive someone, that person has to be just a bit smarter than I am in order to see through my deceit. That means you have a sort of arms race. The predatory criminal does all he can to make that arms race look like a detente ceasefire. He was so nice, is a comment I often hear from people describing the man who, moments or months later, attacked them. We must teach our children that niceness does not equal goodness. Niceness is a decision, a strategy, a social interaction. I encourage women to explicitly rebuff unwanted approaches but I know it is difficult. Just like rapport building has a good reputation, explicitness by a woman has a bad reputation. A woman who is clear and direct is sometimes viewed as a bitch, cold, or both. But dude, I've said it once, I'll say it again. Normality is what weak people call living. Greg Plitt calls it death. If you're a lady, fuck that. Who cares? People call you a bitch. They're just normal people. Do you even care about their opinion anyways? So that's the second kind of weapon that this um, attacker was using. The next weapon or tactic to be, to be on the lookout for is too many details. People who want to deceive you, I explained to Kelly, will often use a simple technique with a simple name. Too many details. The man's use of the story about the cat he left unfed in his friend's apartment is too many details. So I think I, let, I cut this out because I didn't want no damn too many details. But he goes and he was like, hey, let me let me help you. Let me help you. And, and he's like, oh, it looks like we have a hungry cat. I remember one time I babysat for my or I, I cat sat for my friend and I forgot to feed it for a week. And it was a bad thing. Let's gotta get on up there. And that's too many details. What the fuck is he doing? Uh, he, his reference to, hey, you know, we can leave the door open like ladies do in old movies. That, that's too many details. His volunteering that, you know, I'm always late. Broken watch, not my fault. Too many details. When people are telling the truth, they don't feel doubted. So they don't feel the need for additional support in the form of details. When people lie, however, even if what they say sounds credible to you, it doesn't sound credible to them. So they keep talking. The, the defense is often to remain consciously aware of the context in which details are offered. So this is interesting, and I'm sure this can't be a 
you know, a, just a hard and fast rule, but it's just part of that, like calibrating your intuition thing. So I just got back from a two day cross country driving bonanza to Wisconsin. I got in at fucking 1130 on a Wednesday night. I was so damn tired. And my wife was joking with me and she's like, where were you? Were you with another girl? Let me smell you. And I was, but I was just like, leave me alone. I didn't cheat on you. I'm going to bed woman but let's say this two-day trip was actually to visit my illicit side wench gavin's saying i'd probably feel compelled to have a different story i want to have a super coherent story so i might have like rehearsed this on my drive back like so hey you know there's some bad traffic going through chicago you know i really had to pay a lot of tolls and you know, then i kept worrying about running out of gas like this one time in Yellowwood National Forest but you know baby I'd never cheat on you I don't even look at other girls like the last time another girl and I talked was at work but you know nothing happened like are we good dude my wife who might have been joking before but after that type of an answer she would definitely be like hey man I was kidding before but let me smell your dick right now Kelly had so many details thrown at her she forgot the context this man was an absolute stranger Another strategy used by Kelly's rapist was typecasting. A man labels a woman in some slightly critical way, hoping she'll feel compelled to prove the opinion inaccurate. You're probably too snobbish to talk to me, a man will say, and a woman will prove she isn't a snob by talking to him. When Kelly refused her attacker's assistance at first, he said, there's such a thing as being too proud, you know, and she resisted the label of being too proud by accepting help but i definitely you know would have responded hey hey thanks for the feedback little buddy you know what else there is there's such a thing as being a random guy in my apartment i've never seen before trying to guilt me into doing shit back the fuck off if you want to keep your fucking organs pretty sure that would have worked so typecasting you know like i just thought you were open-minded it's like i am open-minded and i'm open to the possibility of never talking to you again the next is loan sharking, which go read the Robert, Robert Cialdini book, Influence, goes a lot more into this, but um, this is reciprocity. You know, he, he wants to be allowed in your place because he was doing something nice for you. Like, hey, I helped you carry this. The least you can do would be let give me the honor of being in your apartment. Okay, that's that, that goes too far. Um, the next tactic that this attacker was using the unsolicited promise for the next next signal i asked kelly to go back to that morning when she was reluctant to let let her attacker into her apartment he said hey i'll just put this stuff down and go i promise the unsolicited promise is one of the most reliable signals because it because it is nearly always of questionable motive promises offer no collateral or guarantee they are the very hollowest instruments of speech, showing nothing more than the speaker's desire to convince you of something. When you encounter an unsolicited promise, it's useful to ask yourself, why does this person need to convince me? The answer, it turns out, is not about him. It's about you. The reason a person promises something is that he can see that you are not convinced. When someone says, I promise, say, at least in your head, you're right. I am hesitant about trusting you and maybe with good reason. Thank you for pointing it out. And I told the story before, but my own personal version of this rule is first car ever bought, driven through wet concrete, total fucking piece of shit. 
and I was spent all my worldly money, wrote him a check for five grand. It was horrible. And this guy, I still remember Ferris, that's his name. I don't forget his last name. Uh, he just kept saying, do trust me, do trust me. And at the time I was like, yeah, yeah, I think I do. But now, since I learned so viscerally, I shouldn't have fucking trusted him. If anybody says, do you trust me? I am extremely suspect, tending towards immediately the answer now is no. And so Gavin is talking to her. It's late. Gavin wants to go home. He's a workaholic. He suggests to Kelly, hey, we'll, we'll discuss the rest tomorrow. But she wants one more signal before we stop. So I speak to her about one more signal, perhaps the most universally significant one of all. But if you want to know what that is, you're going to have to tune in on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. We got a couple more signals, a couple more tactics that evil men have been known to use. We go into his mental model for prediction, and then we're going to take a quick journey into the world of assassinations and stalking and pull out what we, a humble Kusemono, can do to defend ourselves in this crazy world. But if you want that, if you want more, if you want everything, you're going to have to tune in next time on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's my pretties. is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.